and welcome to another episode of the Voices in Japanese Studies podcast. I'm Anna Fittinghoff. And I'm Matt Leighton. In today's episode, we are excited to bring you an interview with the brilliant Dr. Erika Buffelli, Senior Lecturer in Japanese Studies at the University of Manchester. Dr. Buffelli received her PhD from Kafoskari University in Venice before taking up a role as visiting researcher and postdoctoral research fellow at Hosei University in Japan from 2005 to 2007. Dr. Pafeli then spent six years as lecturer and senior lecturer in Asian religions at the University of Otago in New Zealand, before beginning her current role at the University of Manchester in 2013. During this interview, we talked to Dr. Pafeli about her experiences as a student of Japan and its religions, and her career as an academic who has researched Japan in multiple countries and across multiple disciplines. Dr. Pafeli also explores the realities of life as a working academic attempting to balance teaching, research, and administrative work, and we have a thoughtful discussion about how we think we might rethink the expectations and burdens that are placed on working academics. Welcome to the Voices in Japanese Studies podcast. We are delighted to be joined today by Dr. Erica Buffelli. Dr. Erica is a senior lecturer in Japanese studies at the University of Manchester. Dr. Buffelli received her PhD from Kafoskari University and from 2005 to 2007 was a visiting researcher at Hosei University and a postdoctoral research fellow of the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science. Prior to taking up her role in Manchester, Dr. Buffelli was senior lecturer in Asian religions at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Was that yeah, okay? Welcome. Did I did I manage to <laughs> pronounce everything in that okay? Perfect. <laughs> okay. Great. Well, thank you for being with us today, Dr. Buffelli. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, so, as always, um, this is going to be just a, a, a nice, light, casual discussion about your your career so far, your journey into Japanese studies and your career through academia, what sort of put you on the path to doing a degree in Japanese studies in the first place and why you decided to um, pursue that and how that brought you to where you are today. So I think we might as well start at the beginning. Were you always interested in, in Japan or Japanese studies? Is this sort of an interest you held before you started your degree? Um, actually, not at all. Um, I, I knew very little about Japan when, when I was in high school. Um, I didn't like Japan particularly. Um, I was really interested. I was interested in languages. I was interested in, in philosophy. I really loved maths and physics when I was in high school. But then I didn't want to be a teacher. So that was one of the reasons I, I didn't... Uh, uh, pick math or physics at, at university. And I really liked Venice. Um, so I, I must confess my, my decision to do Japanese studies was quite random uh, and more dictated by being 18 years old, living in a small village in the Alps that wanted to live in a bigger and more interesting 
part of the world. Um, and so I, I decided to go to Venice and, and to um, enroll in, in Fosca University. And the, the degree was called uh, Oriental Languages and Literature, and, and you could choose uh, between different languages. And, and I actually picked Japanese quite randomly. Uh, that was uh, something that, yeah, I, I must confess that was no informed decision. Um, and I didn't really, um, I didn't read any manga or, or uh, watch any anime. As, as many, you know, uh, kids in Italy, I grew up with, with Japanese anime, but didn't really connect it with Japan, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, no, I didn't really have any particular interest to, with Japan when I started Japanese studies. So it must have been something, I assume, then, um, sort of in the course of your degree that kind of really sparked a, a further interest, at least enough for you to, you know, want to take it on to, to where you are today. So what was your, what sort of shape did your degree take? Was it kind of a purely language thing or was it um, a degree that kind of uh, split its interest between language studies and cultural studies? So at, the, at the beginning, I really didn't know what I was doing. And I remember the first year, keep asking myself why, why what I'm doing here. Um, although I, I was finding it quite interesting, but I was also, I was the first person in my family to go to the university. So I also didn't know what being a university means. Uh, so what, what study a university was. So it was all very new and, and very excited. And the degree in, in Venice was language and literature. So we had, um, a lot of exam and a lot of courses on, on the language part and also on the literature for the four years of the degrees, but also then modules on history, history and arts, religion and philosophy, philology. And in year three of your degree, you would start taking a specialization in, in one of those areas. And I decided quite early on that mine would be the, the religion and philosophy, because I, I really, really liked the class that I took in, in year one. Um, and then I think what also change it was when in, in, year, in year two, I applied for the Erasmus exchange and I, I had London like my first choice and Paris as the second one. And I think it was Copenhagen or Vienna as, as the third one. And then I was awarded Paris. Um, and then I think the year in, in, in Paris also uh, is where I discovered the, the study of new religions, for example. So that also uh, increased my interest on, on, that, on that field, but also when I took more classes on, uh, on ethnography, anthropology. Um, and so that, that interest in, that, in those areas started uh, in, in, in Paris because in our degree, we were allowed to take some extra module from other departments. And um, so I took some module in, in the anthropology department, for example, depending on, on your orientation, you had this flexibility of taking some of your classes, uh, not, not just from Japanese studies, but also from outside. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I think that's your, your experience really sums up kind of one of uh, the, yeah, the unique, but also, um, yeah, very beneficial to your own academic development, the style of the degree back before the Bologna system, that you don't really have these standardized modules that you have to adhere to, but you're more flexible and in, in a little bit pick and choosing, depending on what you're really interested in at the time. So do you think that 
given like the very nature of, of, of the way the Italian system was done, that kind of gave you more freedom in, in experimenting and finding your, your academic path or voice in, in certain things? I think the flexibility allowed also to explore disciplinary aspect. They were not just the, the language part, which is sometimes an issue we, we have in, 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 in Japanese studies or in area study when we focus a lot in, in, in the study of the language or a specific context, but then uh, we, we feel sometimes that we, we, we lack the background on the, on the disciplinary uh, part. But that uh, the kind of flexibility in those degree allowed that to do, to, to to build up that part as well. And of course we had compulsory uh, courses. So to, to, to have a degree in Japanese, you had to take all the language for the four years and, and the literature class and um, a certain number of courses in history, history of art. So you needed to do, to have a, a kind of overview of all the aspects uh, related to Japan, but they could take, for example, also courses on, on religion from in India and in, in China. So it will give me more also the, the transnational uh, view of the development of, of, of Buddhism or, or, or other tradition, for example, and uh, they, it, it was a it was a four years degree, so there were more exams uh, in a sense, and they were all quite large in terms of how books you had to read and how you had to prepare for those. But they will, I think, give you a very solid background uh, for you know if you wanted to go into postgraduate, for example. But the other thing I think that is something that I, I forgot to mention because I, I'm really sorry that the students in, in the UK are going to miss out that in, in, in the near future, uh, possibly, was the opportunity of, of the Erasmus or being able also to go to, to another European country with a different system uh, and be again exposed to um, the different type of module and, and approach also to, to study Japan. Uh, and, and But in when I went to, to Paris, I, I, I was taking classes in Japanese literature and philology, uh, but uh, I also asked, apply and asked to be able to take um, disciplinary courses in, in anthropology and, and classes on, on religion in Japan that were thought somewhere else, but there was this flexibility uh, at the time that they just allowed me also to be able to take to take these other courses. So to explore, as you were saying, because at the time I was definitely still in a very early exploration of, of what I was basically doing. Um, and you were mentioning that Paris was quite formative and like, uh, for example, um, introducing you to the new religions. And can you maybe um, give a little bit more um, insight into how that came about? Like, was that something that um, the, the institute or the lecturers you were taking classes in Paris were focused on? Or did that come about with conversations from with other students or, or, or staff? Um, as is often the case, it was a, a teacher, a, a professor. So it was, you know, first my professor in, in, in Venice who was teaching Japanese religion uh, was uh, quite focused on, on the modern and contemporary. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, when I moved to, to, to Paris, I was, uh, I enrolled in these courses by Jean-Pierre Bertrand, who was an anthropologist working on, on new religion. And then it was a very small seminar. Uh, it was mainly postgraduate, but they were happy for me to, to take the class. So I didn't, I didn't have to, 
to take exam. So it was also being exposed to uh, fieldwork, to being exposed to kind of depth analysis of, of this religious movement, but also to start learning about them. And this is where I became more and more interested in uh, what was going on in, in the religious landscape now in, in, in the contemporary. Um, so that was definitely, that module was for me uh, um, a turning point in, in then decided when, when I then went back to Venice, I had to decide the topic of my uh, dissertation. And this is where I was starting uh, already. This, I decided in Paris that that would have been the, the area I wanted to, to focus on. I think it's quite interesting because for, for a lot of um, academics there, you can always uh, pinpoint it to a course or uh, a, a certain um, seminar group that kind of kickstarted uh, a certain direction within their career. So I, th I, th I find that's quite quite interesting that you, that these similarities often come up. Yeah. And then I think also the generosity of the people you, you meet because, you know, I was, uh, third year undergraduate, uh, but this professor was very happy for me to go to the seminar and, and to be part of the discussion. And, and we and, and we spent quite a lot of time outside of, you know, with, with a group of students. Um, so also it, when I started seeing someone doing a PhD and what was meant to do a PhD and, and presenting about that. And I think that is quite important also the, the flexibility or generosity of, of some um, colleagues or, or, you know, for teacher that to, to open up and, and welcome uh, the, the, the curious students that, that are they want, that they want to do more. And I think that is, is something that sometimes some structure allow this more than other uh, or, or being this kind of flexibility. And I use that, that word formative, um, which I kind of want to go back to because in sort of a more general sense, I mean, you obviously didn't do a year abroad in Japan, which I think is obviously what a lot of uh, people are drawn to doing Japanese studies degrees for, or a big part of it is the opportunity to go and, and study and live in Japan. But you did do the Erasmus exchange, you did spend a year abroad uh, within your degree. Um, and I think that no matter where you go, that's a really sort of important experience in, in any student's um, time in university, any student that, that does undertake uh, kind of a, a year abroad. And did you find that that year abroad kind of was formative for you it, it, beyond just your developed interest in, in Japanese religions and, and Asian religions, but more like as a scholar and as, as a person? Oh, definitely. You know, was uh, one of the biggest turning point in my life uh, in the sense that it was also the first time I lived, uh, I was living already alone, but I lived alone in a, in a different country with a different language. As far as French is relatively similar to Italian, I still had to pick up another language in, in, the, in the few months I was there, the year I was there. Um, one of the reasons I didn't go to Japan is because you're, we are talking about the late 90s uh, and, and going to Japan from Italy was extremely expensive. So in, in my course in, in Japanese studies, very few students could actually afford to do it. There was still not exchange programs as they are now. There were very little uh, funding available, almost none. Um, so we were quite envious of, of our colleagues in Chinese studies because they could go to China every summer and, and, and it was cheaper than staying in Venice. Uh, but uh, for, for the student in Japanese studies was 
quite difficult. And this was also the, the very practical reason why for my dissertation, I decided to look a new religion online because it was one of the way for me to, to have primary sources without having to travel to Japan. If you know, I was interested in media, and then it's also something that developed to uh, some uh, modules I was taking. But if I wanted to work on a um, magazine or newspaper, I would have had to, to travel to, to the archive. And, and I couldn't afford to do that. So I, I was, the and the, the timing ended up being very in my favor because it was the you know, late 90s when internet was developing. And there was also this first wave of study on internet religion was the very first wave. Uh, so I was allowed, and it was very interesting to, start with a part of that discussion. But the reality was that again, it was not strategic. Um, I never been very good at strategy. It was really much practical uh, that uh, how could I have a primary source to work in? If I work on website, I can access them from Venice. Uh, so that was the, the, other, um, the other reason really why, why I, I, I um, enter into that, that field at the beginning. Uh, but yeah, Ven uh, you know, Venice first, and then of course Paris was a, a very formative experience and, and completely changed, uh, not, not just me as a scholar or, or as a student at the time, but as, as a kind of a life-changing experience. And uh, was that already then uh, towards the last uh, few years of, of in kind of when you, when you had to then submit your thesis um, around that time when you kind of decided uh, that you want to take this a step further and maybe um, go on uh, to do a PhD or, or was that something that you kind of toyed with earlier, already earlier, or how, how did you uh, end up then enrolling in a PhD? Um, again, no, I, I, have, I was not considering that at all. Um, and then, but I really enjoyed writing my dissertation. I, I really love it. Uh, and I am, you know, so coming back from Paris, I did the final year and then I was writing the dissertation. And then I, I, I graduated and then the, the idea was to, and I, and I went to Japan immediately. Um, and the idea was to spend a few months in Japan, come back, and, and start applying for, for jobs or, or see what things were going. I, I really didn't have, again, much idea what I wanted to do, uh, to, to be honest. And then when I came back from Japan, um, in, in Italy, the PhD uh, at the time, and I, I think it's still similar, you, you, uh, you apply and um, you, there is an exam, there is an written and an oral exam. And at the time, every year was more or less thematic um, and I was lucky that the uh, year I came back in that fall, uh, the, that, that year, uh, the cycle of, of PhD um, call was on, on, on religion uh, in, in East Asia. And so I was um, you know, approached by my former supervisor and asking if I would be interested in, in, in applying. And, and so that, that what they said, well, why not? Um, so, but again, it wasn't necessary in, in, my, in my plan, uh, but I, I definitely really enjoyed writing my dissertation. I, 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 I didn't exclude that that would have been um, that something I would have enjoyed doing, but you know, uh, when, Again, when we didn't have many role models, I didn't have 
friends that was doing PhDs at the time. Uh, so it looks something quite, you know, different or something quite, I, I didn't know much about it. Um, and so that, that is what I did. So I applied and, and passed the exam. And then um, my, my only closer was that I can only do it if I, I can get a scholarship uh, because otherwise I, I couldn't uh, do it. So, and then in the meanwhile, I just did uh, random works, <laughs> uh, some translation and, and, and working, yeah, part-time in, in a, uh, pizza place in, in Venice and, and, and waiting for, uh, for the exam and preparing for that. Um, and then um, I passed the exam and, and started the PhD. So that, that's what's happened. Again, <laughs> very little strategy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really reassuring because uh, most of the time when, when you're uh, young and you've just finished school and not, not everybody is in the headspace to really have like a, a five or a 10 year plan ahead of them. It just take, yeah, a little bit of coincidences and um, a bit of fortune uh, to end up uh, on, on something that then turns out to be, be a career path, but uh, probably um, not many people start up on something other than if it's, for example, an apprenticeship where you really have a goal at the end, but think with academia <laughs> a degree can take you to so many different places and yeah definitely yeah. and it's really you know it's really difficult to sometimes to, to plan or, or to have a, you know, but there are people that had you know when I was at university some of my friends had much more clear idea or ideally what they wanted to do you know what what their their career path they they wanted to take where I um, I one one thing I knew it was I really like reading books and and and, and writing and, and thinking, but and the the practical things were a little bit uh, more difficult for me to think about. But I didn't exclude any kind of possible career. You know that that was never been the case. That I would say definitely this not. Uh, I I always been quite open, but yeah, I, I agree that you know, luck play, plays a role as, as well. And then this doesn't undermine saying that hard work doesn't because it does, but, you know, there is also, you know, coincidences or, or place and timing that are also sometimes quite quite important. And it's, it's, um, it's important also to acknowledge that. I know that, that there are also these coincidences sometimes which, which happen. And when you were, um, you said that after um, you finished your degree, you went to Japan. That was then the first time that you've been in, in Japan since studying about it. And, and how, how would you describe that experience of, of then finally encountering like the, 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 the culture and the language and the history that you've been studying for, for four years? Um, it was terrifying at the beginning because my thought I remember on the plane was, was if I hate it. <laughs> I have a degree in Japanese studies. I spent all this time studied the language and everything. And what if I really don't like it? And this is something I've been talking with my student this year, the one that couldn't go to Japan. Uh, because you know, you 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 think about that. And and of course, as as for for possibly many of us, the, the input was both fascinating and, and, and a kind of overwhelming and, and fantastic and, and, and also overwhelming in, in a sense. So 
oh my, I know I have all these words in my head and I cannot see a, say a word and, and then this kind of brutal impact with the reality of a language when it's spoken by uh, people in, in, in daily life situation when and, and not in a classroom situation. Uh, but I really love it. Uh, so I one thing I decided in, in this in this first few months is that I really wanted to, to, to spend more time in Japan. Uh, so that was something reassuring, uh, in a sense, um, uh, that you know, I, I thought, oh, finally, I think for the first time, I thought, okay, that was the right decision to make uh, a few years back. Um, but it also was the decision that I really wanted to spend more time. So as soon as I entered my PhD, I, I applied for a fellowship to go back. So I, I spent one of the three years, the entire year is in Japan. With, with a Canon Foundation uh, fellowship. So that, that was also one, one thing that I immediately felt is that I, 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 would, I wanted to spend more time in, in, in the country. So you mentioned that your undergraduate thesis then was in uh, on Japanese religions and the internet, and you've done subsequently done some really interesting research on that topic during your academic career. So did you just pick that up with your PhD? Was that the focus of your PhD research? Uh, in the PhD, I, I moved not just from the internet, but I, I the beginning I wanted to look more, I started as, as you usually do with a PhD with something extremely broad <laughs> that was more looking at uh, new religion, especially post-war new religion and, and media in, in, in mainly from the point of view how they were using the media for uh, image strategies. Uh, but then, uh, and I started then interviewing several groups in Japan, but then that resulted to be too wide. So I ended up decided to focus the PhD on one group. Uh, and, and the group I picked was Kofukunokagaku, Hepic Science, because it was, um, you know, relatively short-lived. So I, I, I look at them from the beginning in, in the mid eighties to, 2004 when, when I was finishing writing so it was manageable and also because it went through different phase of using the media and also clashing with the media so I can also look at the uh, at the tense the tension between an organization and and the media but there was also all the discussion about authority and construction of, of leader images that I was particularly interested in and they were uh, the more in, in, in interesting case studies for me also looking at an issue of, of marketing uh, and these different kind of languages they, they were using so at the end the PhD became very focused on, on them. Uh, but then when I, I wrote the book, I decided again to open it up. So I, I de decided not to write a book that was only on Kofukunokagaku, but to look more at use of, of media of, of, by religion organization at the beginning. Uh, so in, in the formation period of the organization. Um, so, and, and then look at that, uh, some other organization and, and see how they, the use of media impacted ritual practice or construction of the image of the leader, et cetera, at the very beginning of the, 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 the started of a new religion, the born or the, the birth of a new religion. So this is how the process went. Uh, so for the thesis, so I, I never really published a book out of my thesis. So the, the book that came out was actually with postdoc in that as well. And, and with extra field work that I did af afterwards. And so through your PhD then, did you 
become pretty convinced that, th- that this is what you wanted to do, that this is what you wanted to, to stick with. You wanted to look at forging an academic career and writing about this and researching about this for a living? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> again, during my PhD, I, I again really love it. Um, so uh, when I, I spent this year in Japan and then I came back and, and I write it up, uh, because my um, fellowship, my studentship was for three years, so I, I really wanted to finish in, in, the, in the three years. And then I submitted it, and while I was waiting for, for, the, for the Viva, for the defense, uh, my, the only thing I decided that I wanted was to go back to Japan. So my aim was to try to apply to find a way to go back. Um, so I, I decided at that point that I didn't actually want to start entering, for example, temporary teaching contracts. Uh, my priority was to go back to Japan because I felt I needed a little bit more of time there um, to, solidi- to solidify also my, my research if I wanted to go down in, in that direction. And, and that is what I decided I applied for the JSPS. I, I thought that that was would have been the, the ideal for me would have been that at least two years in, in Japan. Um, and then is where we so when while I was waiting for the Viva. I, I started, I think I applied for it and then defended my PhD and, and went to Japan. And I just decided I'll go there and I wait for the, uh, to, to the response uh, in, in Japan. And then also because it was a, a very important conference I wanted to be at, you know, I, I defended in, in February and there was this conference in March and I just decided to, to stay on. And then when I was there, I, I got the news that I was awarded. So I came back um, just to sort out you know, the, the luggage and, and everything, and the visa. And then I, I, I moved back by the summer in, 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 in Japan for the, for the postdoc at, at Hosei. And for, for example, you mentioned uh, that you were set on going back to Japan and did you uh, ever have like a, a plan B or what would happen if, if, if there wouldn't be kind of like an, an academic um, a scholarship or, or, or of, of sorts um, that you could apply to? Would you have had like an alternative plan of, of, of going back and doing um, the fieldwork that you wanted or were you kind of in the more in the mindset that well if if you don't get a scholarship to do so then um you will look for for other options more the latter so the idea was i i'll i'll try this first and then if there are other scholarship i might try it but if it don't work out i was probably going to try apply for a job what jobs i had no idea (laughs) (laughs) that would have been probably kind of tried everything probably as as many of of, of us does start as I was doing a bit in Japan when I was there you know start teaching uh, Italian a bit and then try from there what what will will appear uh, so I didn't really had a clear plan B in the sense I want to do this if this doesn't work out uh, but I was definitely open to the idea um, that you know I give it a try maybe you know, give me a few months uh, of, of trying this, but if this isn't, if it doesn't work out, I, I will I will apply for, for something else. Um, and this was also the case uh, during my postdoc. Uh, 
So to, to preempt your question, <laughs> but, uh, even during the postdoc, I was still not sure that I wanted to have an academic career. Um, but then at the time, uh, at the, in the second year of my postdoc, and I, again, I, I love it. I, I was, I really, really like it. Um, at that point, my uh, priority was, became in wanting to try to go somewhere else. You know, I wanted to also to, to experience some, somewhere else. Um, and I started looking for job opportunities. And of course, you've done a, a PhD, a postdoc, uh, you know, that's, uh, you, you try with academic job first. Uh, and that is when I started and then I applied. But again, at the time too, I, I thought I'll give it a go. Uh, uh, but if it doesn't necessarily work, I was still open to maybe try to, to find other, other avenue. Uh, but I was really naive in the sense that I never really had very planned for other avenues uh, in, in, in that sense. So comparing to some of the uh, uh, early career researcher, I, I had to, you know, I, I had a discussion with uh, here in the last few years when I was also the director of the NWC DTP, uh, I was extremely impressed also for, for their, you know, the, the kind of activity they do to, to prepare themselves and to get more knowledgeable about alternative and, and try to find out where this skill can be used uh, in, in, different, in different sectors. I, I was extremely naive on that. I, I, did, I, I also did, wasn't that offered the opportunity. There were not much discussion on that comparing to nowadays, I think. Um, it was also, of course, at, 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 if it was not 50 years ago, it's still a diff, it was still different that, that it is now uh but it's a, but i think that i was quite naive in this idea that yeah i can apply for some job but not really had much clear idea what you said at the beginning so in in going back to uh being fresh out of of school that like you were very adamant that you don't want to be a teacher um so that's why you didn't take up uh, your previous passions of, of maths and physics or interests did this um, change during your later um, academic years, especially like um, during your postdoc um, and then or the PhD? Did you have teaching opportunities and kind of found a liking to it, or how how did you change from yeah being not really couldn't really seeing yourself as a teacher to then now sitting here as a as a teacher in a, in a more broader sense? I, I, I had very little uh, teaching experience um, because it's, it's, it did, you know, except for a few guest lectures when I was in Italy because I was away for a big chunk of my, my PhD and also then I had to finish it. And the postdoc uh, with the JSPS didn't include any, any teaching. So again, I, I did a few guest lectures here and there, but they were with, with in, in Japan, but I never had to, um, you know, do teach an entire module, for example. So the first time I was in charge of, of an entire module was when I got my first job in, in New Zealand. Um, and that was a bit of a baptize of fire because I arrived um, straight from Japan uh, and from summer to winter uh, in, in a country I never lived before. I knew very, again, very little about, um, more or less where it was geographically. And I had very good feeling about this, but not much more in a religious studies department. So again, it was a different field. And I had to teach two courses. 
but but then I, I actually started liking from from the very beginning. So I, I never, um, you know, that that was something I, I enjoyed. Probably, you know, I also don't remember much the first months because I was so stressful uh, and, and panicking all the time. But again, I think I had uh, huge luck to be in an extremely collegial department and, and with extremely kind students as well because I, I know I think they were really patient with me at, at, the, at the beginning, but it was, I, I think it was the, the best place I could think of for, for landing your first job as relatively inexperienced to be in, in, in such a welcoming and, and collegiate department. So that is something I'm extremely grateful to, to my colleagues. Uh, but also to the student, they, they were extremely nice <laughs> and kind, and that's helped as well. So how was your experience at the, the University of Otago? Uh, what, what was your role there and, and how did it come about? Was it the first place that you applied to? Did you have to go through you know, a few uh, rejections to get your first, your first position? It was the first place I applied to. And uh, they called me for an interview when I was in Italy for a conference. And at the beginning, I, I panicked. Um, I actually say, I, I, I really don't know. I, I cannot be there on time because I'm, I'm at that uh, event. So they kindly postponed my interview, which at the end helped because in, in, in New Zealand, like, in, in, like we do in Manchester, we call all the candidates together. And then it would have been probably too much. Uh, and, and, <laughs> but when I went, I was the only one because the other candidates has already been interviewed uh, the week before or so. So it was, and, and I think the extremely good thing they do, uh, or they did at the time, and I hope they still do, was that you spend three days there so you had the opportunity to talk with uh, several colleagues in the department, to see the city, to, to see the university, uh, to really have a feeling of the place. Uh, and, and then, you know, which is quite important if then you have to do this, this big move. And yeah, as I say, I was in, in religious studies. So it was, uh, it was theology and religion, the department, and I was in the religion section. And I was, uh, uh, my, was a lectureship in Asian religions. And I was given, and this was also something uh, I was really um, happy about. I was, was given quite a lot of freedom about what to teach. Of course, I was given some suggestion on some of the courses that I taught was they were, were attracting more students. So I, uh, in the second year there, I was asked to teach a, a course on Zen Buddhist that was not probably what I would have picked, uh, but it was a, a course that had a lot of interest. So it, it usually recruits very well. And I ended up actually enjoying teaching it because I, I could, of course, there's different way of teaching it. Uh, and, and it ended up being one of the courses that I actually enjoyed, uh, enjoyed doing. Um, so I was teaching mainly uh, courses on, on East Asian religion and, and a module on, on Median religion as, as well um, across, the, across the degree. And it also was really interesting for me as an experience because it was um, at the religious studies department, not a Japanese studies department. So I, uh, the student had knowledge about different religion and how you study religion, but they know very little about Japan and they, they didn't do the language. So it was also a way of thinking of how to teach uh, and what kind of how approach that the study of, of 
East Asian religion in this case, in in in, in a different in a different context, um, and and of course the, the the place itself, as I say, I, I was really lucky to be in this. Um, a very collegial um, department in which I could go and, and knock on the door of my head of department, but especially my colleague in religious studies all the time, and they they really patiently um, uh, replied to my question, but they also taught me how you, to be a generous colleague, so because I remember when I arrived, uh, my colleagues to just give me all their syllables uh, as, as as samples. They they gave me their their grant application to look at. So they they shared everything, and that was something um, that I realized later is not necessarily the norm. <laughs> and then, but it's this kind of generosity uh, and 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 really feeling welcome, uh, even if you know I was. Really, very inexperienced. I never lived in an English-speaking country before, and and you know my main language were Japanese and Italian at, at the time, and then French. Uh, so there was also you know a lot to take on, and and but then I think was also the the best place I could ask for for starting the career because it, it, you know you, you start in a place like that. I think is also. Uh, shape you as 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 a colleagues and and as a researcher in in a sense. So it was an amazing experience, and it's, it's such an, an amazing country to to spend a few a few years in. How how did how did you experience that shift from being like predominantly a researcher to then kind of uh, getting accustomed to be to be a, a teacher? and uh, to kind of uh, having that responsibility of how or finding out how can I really um, prepare uh, knowledge for the students as well like did you uh, experience that as a particularly difficult a thing to transition to um, you've mentioned that you had a lot of support from your colleagues there and that that was very very helpful and uh, the support was uh, very very much appreciated but how did you um yeah, experienced that personally. It was it was tough at the beginning. I, I'm not denying it. I say I don't remember much of, of the first six months. Uh, but at the same time, of course, I was extremely grateful for having a job and, and having a permanent job and, and, and everything. Uh, but you know, I, undeniable, I didn't do much research. You know, that you know, for, for that first um, period, it, the, the focus moved to something else. So the focus were on teaching, on, on getting into the country. Um, but, you know, for, for the first period, I, I you know, I, the, the research suffered a bit. Um, I was in a lucky situation in the kind of coming out from a, 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 a postdoc, I had material to work with. So I had a lot of fieldwork material and, and other and, and a few things in the pipeline uh, that allowed me also for a period to, you know, and to, to not, you know, to be able for focusing a period in, in preparing the teaching and focusing on the teaching. And then I, I was regularly going back to Japan because it's the other, the other good thing is was still been access to a small pot of funding, but they, they were good enough to be able to, to regularly, one twice a, a year, to go back to Japan and, and keep in contact with, with the field and everything. And that was also uh, essential uh, in, in that sense. But it, you know, th there was definitely a lot, and I'm not going to lie, and it was hard work. And then and, and it was a lot of um, 
uh, yeah, it, it was definitely a steep learning curve. I remember a lot of crying as well at the beginning, but um, but I was also, uh, you know, and this is a privilege to that, that, that was, I had the privilege of being mobile, of being able to be flexible in, in being able to relocate, um, that I was in a relationship that allowed also this kind of, of flexibility that I, I, I know is, is not the case for everybody. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I think it's always, also important to think that, yeah, it was hard work, but there was a series of privilege that allowed me to, to make the choice, um, which are also important to, to acknowledge, but it, was, it, was, it wasn't easy, yeah. And so you mentioned the transition from sort of a postgrad researcher to an academic who researches, but also has to spend a large portion of their time teaching, but you also mentioned the transition from one field into another you know you're going into a religious studies department um, and you're sort of working with I'm assuming religious studies scholars rather than Japan experts how did you find that transition into kind of uh, you know obviously you're you were very familiar with religion and the study of religion but sort of working with uh, within a, a department that was situated within um, another field and how do you feel that, that has kind of shaped you as a, a scholar since? I was already uh, used to work with, with scholars in other fields because during my year at Keio during the, um, uh, the PhD, I was, with, I was working with anthropologists. So it, it was, I was not working with Japan specialists. And then and when I decided my affiliation for the JSPS, I decided to go to Hosei and I was in a social sciences department because I thought I needed a little bit more of that aspect. And I was especially working with people doing media studies but I was also in a research group at the Minpaku that was working on anthropology of business. Um, so I was again working with, with a lot of uh, anthropologists and, and, and people from also business and economics. So th that, uh, and, and I, I was working already, a lot of my content in, in Japan are, are mainly from, from people in, in anthropology of religion, sociology of religion, so in religious studies. So I, I was, um, already used to you know to, to work with, with with that discipline um it was definitely interesting it was quite it, it was extremely interesting for me to having a little bit more comparative approach uh even if i never really got it, it too much into comparative in in my writing in the sense that i you know i sometimes don't have the language expertise to to branch out in, into other contexts but the dialogue with uh colleagues working on biblical studies or working on philosophy of religion was um, extremely important for you know thinking through the question i was asking in my research and 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 also through through those dialogue and through those discussion that was extremely helpful uh, i think that was the one of the highlights of, of being in in a disciplinary well where and then religious studies is of course a composite of different disciplines you know each of us came from quite different background um someone came from history or philosophy or, or biblical studies um you know language area studies so th there is also this um, characteristic of, of religious studies, but definitely uh, the, the dialogue or the discussion and inform and, and shape my research quite a lot since 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 then. Um, so that was also 
quite, but also in the term of, of what I didn't want to go into. So what the, the type of approach that I was not particularly interested in, uh, that is also what you learn through, through those, those exchange, obviously. And so you were at the University of Otago for six years. How did your, your role develop over that time? So I, in, in terms of research, I, I, I was continuing the work on, uh, specifically on media, but it's also when I started working on um, the post-arm period. So it's, it's also when uh, the collaboration with Ian Reader started that then led to several publications together. And, and uh, I think one of the, you know, the, the projects that I was more, there was two main projects that I did over this year. There was the, the edited volume on, on religion and the internet in Japan, and then the Japanese Journal of Religious Studies special issue on the aftermath of the sarin gas attack. So I, I think I developed more into looking at the media and to look in a little bit more of, of other questions and, and other issue on, on the post-70s um, religions landscape and, and, and wider discussion uh, in, in Japan. So in that sense, it's mature more into, into that, that direction, but still ethnographic-based kind of research. So for me, it's always been very important to talk to the people. And then uh, my role in, in, in Otago, of course, I became, my responsibility uh, was, was becoming uh, more, you know, the, the kind of uh, more demanding in, in terms not in terms of teaching. Uh, we were offering both uh, distance learning and on-campus learning. So I, I did quite a lot of distance learning as well uh, at, at Otago, um, which is becoming quite useful at the moment. Although it was organized in a, in a different way, uh, but and then I also, of course, taking more and more uh, ad, admin responsibility that. Um, something that probably none of you particularly like, but at some point we need to start to start doing. So that also when, when it's, it's developing in that direction as well. Um, and so I started getting a little bit more experience also on those aspects of, of the job that is more the administrative one. There's obviously, you, you know, you mentioned you started um, publishing with uh, Ian Reader and started getting, getting uh, more and more sort of academic publications out there. And there is this certain amount of um, expectation and pressure on, on academics to have a regular research output. How did you find that balance of trying to, to strike that balance between kind of meeting your commitments to keep producing uh, research output, but also all the other things, the administrative side, the teaching side, um, and all the other various commitments that, that come with a, an academic job? Good question. Um, I haven't found an answer yet. <laughs> and, and having a life on top of that, right? Um, I, I think I've never been very good at balance, I, I must admit. Uh, and and I, I think I was also, I was lucky both at, at Otago and, and in, in Manchester that some of the, the things the thing I teach are connected to my research, which is allowed to keep up with the literature, to keep up with the, 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 the the debates, uh, to keep reading about the topic. Um, and that was a, a, a strategically quite useful in, in, in terms of, of your research as well. Um, something I'm, I'm learning finally, uh, but, but I'm still not very good at it, is blocking out your time and, and saying no. Uh, but I'm, I'm still really the worst example of, of that. So, 
but I finally started doing it a little bit more than I used to um, in, in terms of, so, of carving out time, um, especially when it's come to, to administration, uh, because it's, it's, a, it's a type of jobs that can easily eat up a lot of your time. And, and sometime I, I list, I sometime maybe, you know, this, this feeling, okay, okay, I'll do it because, you know, I can do it and then move on and doing my reading and my writing, but it's not really the, the right approach because then you ended up spending a lot more time than you would like with that. So being a little bit more uh, organized in, in carving out your time, there was period where I was better in probably than I am now, that I really tried with have a very clear calendar in, in the week with color-coded time uh, for, for different oh. things that they wanted to do uh, that failed hor horrendously, but at least I, I had a, an idea in mind. Um, also because I, I, I know I, I, I'm very envious and, and very, um, you know, respectful of some of my colleagues who are extremely organizing their writing so they can, uh, wake up very early in the morning and, and start writing or the carving out this, now I write for two hours. I, I'm not good at that. I know I, I sometimes write for a lie and there are some days I can write two sentences and, they, and then delete them. Uh, so I am much more erratic uh, and I work a lot at night, which is not necessarily as very good when you are single, but when you start having other people living with you it becomes a little bit more problematic. Um, uh, but you know that I think being a bit better in, 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 in organizing uh, it does, but is is a constant challenge and I think is is becoming more and more and, and this is you know undeniable we all know that is is becoming more and more difficult to to manage all of this because the what what I notice in, in over the year is this expansion of demanding on our time you know and this expansion of, of things that you are supposed to 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 do if you had you know 48 hours in a day it's, yeah. it's just not not possible. You know, that, that actually I, you know, that it, it, it's not just us failing to do that. It's just that what we're asked to do sometimes is not feasible. Um, and I think that that is something we need to address in a much better way than we are doing. What, what I'm becoming more and more um, uh, convinced of uh, that we, we need to start to take this job as a job. Uh, not as a mission, not as a vocation, is a job. Uh, and, and then, you know, I think that is a different set of mind that what sometime, um, you know, we have been trained to think that, that this is something special. And, and, and But it's, at the end of the day, it's a job. And, and I think that re reframing that in that way uh, will probably help us a little bit more also in the balance of, of life and, and, and work. But it's, it's not an easy process, I, I realize. And when you also have, and of course, you know, your early career, you're a beginning of, of, of your career, and, and there is this humongous pressure, uh, it, which are very difficult to fight against. Uh, and, and it's the reason why in, in, in that situation, I, I, I strongly believe that is the role of, of who is in a, a position of power or, or has a little bit more a, uh, in, in power that that to help in that to intervene and, and to create you know to try to uh, protect the time of of, of 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 the other people and I think that is something that we need to be better at personally yeah I, I can we can I 
I think we all can just agree with that because um, even not being um, yet in the position of uh, having like an academic job, but having a little bit of um, behind the scenes knowledge of having done a little bit of uh, tutoring uh, and then juggling your personal life with writing your thesis, doing the research and yeah, getting the words done uh, uh, is, is quite a struggle by the looks of things, uh, this kind of, yeah, maybe this tension that you have as a PhD student at the moment uh, does translate then later into the stable positions as well, um, because there's just so many responsibilities and so many, yeah, as you said, we, we, we only have 24 hours, unfortunately, in a day, and by the looks of things, it's just not enough. Yeah, it is, it's, it's difficult to find, find that kind of balance and having that organized, um, yeah schedule as well um i i i have i can very much personally relate to that that i i do struggle with uh, really sticking to the to-do lists and the the time uh, schedules that i set up for myself um just because life happens i think that is a lot of the times in these conversations not really a mention that um you're not just a scholar, you're also a, a human being with, with a social life and with other responsibilities. And I think, as, as you said, it is not only um, important for those who, who are in a position of power to protect, but also to kind of inform and, and be like, listen, we are going through the same things. This, is, this shouldn't be normalized in a way that it maybe is. Yeah, it shouldn't be normalized, I mean, especially it shouldn't be normalized for the one of us who has permanent position because it's undeniable that, you know, it's, uh, um, I, I feel very patronized in saying that we are in the same boat because we are not, you know, it's it recognizing their own privileges is also important. Um, and, and I think that this is something that, um, you know that, that we need to be to be very careful about, uh, and and but at the same time, um, you know that uh, overwhelming and, and the overpressure are impacting, at, at you know across across the board, uh, in in different way, and it's it's just becoming unsustainable in in some in some cases. So you 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 see people <laughs> getting ill, which is or, or um, leaving that because they uh, you know, but which sometimes is definitely the, the best uh, choices if they find something that is much more fulfilling. Uh, is the reason again this this kind of romanticization of of, of the the academic job is something we need to be much more open about that is really not the case <laughs> and and then um you know that is so it's something sometime is there but we, we and, and also we we you know some discussion that came up much more openly now is the discussion about failure we talk really very little about failure we tend to only tweet about our success and our publishing book but not about uh every time we we, we, we cannot write a line in the entire day or any time that our grant is rejected or article is rejected or you know, we submit something to, to friends or colleagues to say this doesn't make any sense, <laughs> or you know, or, or um, well, at the same time, you just don't want just to focus on that because then yeah. it's becoming just you know that can also become this kind of neg negative, just looking at the at, at the negative part that can also lead to some 
um, you know, ugly feelings that are probably not necessarily sometimes is, is to strike the balance or not romanticize and not just project these images of success that is, is the reason I feel sometimes social media are quite toxic in that regards, uh, that, that can put extra pressure on, um, uh, and, and on, on some people that they don't feel that they are doing enough. And so this constantly feeling that you are not doing enough is something we need to be more open about uh, and also more um, open about trying to fight it back in, in a sense. But, it, but the, at the same time is, is what uh, drives us, right? It's the fact that you are never completely satisfied with what you're doing. There is also something you want to dis look a bit more is the not feeling the feeling that you need to do more is what drive the researchers so it's it's, it's striking the balance which is always something probably important and and um, and definitely probably not the one that is quite good at that yeah it's definitely very difficult uh, a thing to 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 achieve and probably uh and unfortunately in the current situation, even harder than it probably was, I don't know, a, a couple of decades before us when curriculums were a little bit more lenient, more uh, flexible. And um, yeah, the, the, the industry kind of that, uh, that university and higher education has become was, was, wasn't the case. And um, that kind of leads us also to um, you coming then to the UK and where you are now uh, in mm -hmm. Manchester, where you kind of, as, as, as previously, there, there was a little bit of uh, like unrest when you were in Japan that you feel, felt like that you needed to go somewhere else. Did you then encounter those same feelings um, when you were in New Zealand or was that just a, a practical decision that you got, uh, saw this offer and, and wanted to take your chances? It was more that I think I, I was happy in New Zealand, so I didn't really think about applying to other to other job. But then the job in Manchester came up, and for me, it was more uh, um, uh, which is quite ironic to say it now was more the idea of going back to Europe. You know, was the idea of being closer um, to to the you know the kind of environment that I felt very at home um, uh, geographically as as well. And and but I, I was happy in New Zealand, although at the time there were very few people working in area close to mine in in, in religion, in particular religion in Japan in in. New Zealand and Australia, there are actually more now. Um, so that was also the idea of being closer to the people I was working with uh, that were mainly based in Europe. Uh, but it was also, yeah, and of course there was also personal reason of being closer to, to my family. Uh, so that was, it was a combination of, of the um, geographical location and, and personal reason. And, and also that was a job in Japanese studies. So it was also moving back uh, from at the beginning and, 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 and going into, into Japanese studies. So that was um, the, the reason why I applied for, for the position in Manchester and then ended up moving in Manchester a, a year later, basically, because I was interviewed in, in July and I moved in April the following year. And so how does your role in Manchester differ to what you're doing in New Zealand? Um, obviously, you've moved then from a religious studies department to a Japanese studies department. Were you? Uh, did you go into Manchester as a senior lecturer, or is that something that happened yeah. after time? Yeah. 
Yeah, because I was promoted in New Zealand. So um, then I was offered uh, the position as senior lecturer in Manchester as well. Um, in Manchester, I, um, of course, the, the students are different. A lot of my students are in Japanese studies. So I, in a sense, I, I can give it for granted more about Japan in general when I teach them, although I have quite a few students coming from anthropology for religious studying as well. So I, I tend to have this kind of variety in, in, in class. Uh, but in, in Manchester over the year, I also took up more uh, admin roles. So I've been um, the, the research coordinator for five years in, in my department that expanded it then in a larger department. So I I'm, was the lucky one, the one of the lucky one that uh, worked on the ref submission, uh, luckily with a team because it was a very big um, uh, unit. And also for three years, I, I was the director of the Northwest um, Consortium DTP, so one of the uh, HRC doctoral training partnership. So then I finished last year in August. And that was for me a, an extremely interesting experience. So for three years, 50% of my, of my time was as, as a DTP director. And, and then um, I, I really like two things in particular. One is of course working with, with postgraduate students, um, which, you know, and, and working with postgraduate students in such a variety of topics because there's a consortium of seven university uh, in, in the Northwest, so there is, basically covering all the possible fields in arts and humanities, that, that was extremely interesting. But also working more with not academic partners, because I, we, we had a lot of external partners from you know, the British Library, but also museums and, and, and you know, BBC. So also try you know understand how things works outside uh, academia, also in terms really of, of how planning works uh, and how they, uh, the when you see a project, how they actually envision in, in a different way. And that was extremely interesting. That, that was a lot of learning uh, for me, but it was one of the most interesting experience and, and gave me, I think, a very interesting view also in, in that is reflected now how I think when I think my research, for example. Um, so that was something, and, and of course the pace keep up in Manchester much more that, that it was in New Zealand in, in terms of commitment of, of, of time, um, etc. But uh, I, I think this eight years has been very, very rewarding, very busy very tiring, uh, but uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I, in, in Manchester, I had you know, a lot of experience in, in, in different areas, uh, but now I stepped down from, from the, the role. So I, um, I've been doing more teaching this year. But I think that's really interesting though, and maybe something that people don't necessarily think about when they're thinking about an academic career. I mean, I know it's not something you can necessarily plan or that uh, you can take for granted, but these opportunities to work on, on different projects kind of outside academia. Um, I know we, we spoke to uh, Dr. Lauren Richardson for our last interview, and I know she's done a lot of really interesting work kind of consulting with governments um, and things like that. And it's just maybe something that people don't necessarily think about when they're thinking, oh, you know, what is an academic career like? That there might be these opportunities to kind of work with other institutions and, and outside bodies and really kind of, um, you know, expand your range of experiences in in our in, in in the training in the dtp we actually had quite a lot of training on um on working with with outside partners so because I, I think it's you know there is more and more 
um, which I think is also important, the, the idea that you need to think about uh, other possible avenue where, where to use your skill um, as a PhD, but you also need to, to some help to how to think about that. Uh, so we set up quite a lot of training that was in collaboration with our external partner that was focusing on collaboration, how you work together, how you devise a project together, what does it mean to work on this organization, um, et cetera. And, and one of my uh, recently um, graduated PhD student uh, is, uh, has a job in the civil service. Uh, so I, I decided to go into a, a different career path, but using the skill uh, from, from their, for their PhD. Um, so I, I think that uh, that is also an area that interested me quite a lot as, as director of the DTP was also to try to think the PhD in, in, a, in a broader context and in, in, a, in a different way. We, we still don't do that much in heart and humanities as they do in, in other fields, probably, because it's in a way we sometimes struggle more to understand how our skills can be applied. But I, I think it's also more honest as a potential supervisor to, to have this discussion very early on with, with, with the PhD students about what is the reality now, um, not just of the job market, but also of the, of the job in academia, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the sense that, you know, um, some people might just decide that is not what they think is a fulfilling profession or, or and some other do, of course. Uh, but I, as I said before, this romanticized image uh, is, is something that I don't really keen into staying in, 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 that, in that sense. Um, although I still think it's, it's a, a, an amazing and very privileged job to have, and I'm not denying that, so, but um, there is also a lot of mystical images about that. Um, but so I, I think that was an extremely interesting experience for me those, those, those three years. And to put that into the like the current situation a little bit into um, um, the context of what is, is happening not only in academia but all around the world mm. with the uh, COVID pandemic for example um, and then also Brexit obviously something that impacts um, academia um, especially in Britain uh, very much so. The two of us are on this very call um, are EU um, citizens. Um, so obviously this is something um, that, uh, yeah, with Brexit, however, that will then manifest uh, might change things. But how do you see Japanese studies in that setting, in, in this post-COVID world in a way, hopefully when we will enter that, but I mean, you've, you've mentioned that when you were talking to um, your students uh, who were meant to be in Japan but couldn't go in, in, in these uh, times, uh, do you see there are like paradigm shifts coming um, into the subject or do you think it is sustainable to just go on the way it was up until last year? I, I, I think it's, you know, I, I've been thinking about that quite a lot um, and it's very difficult to see things at the moment, you know, when you are inside something and for someone study the contemporary is a constant conundrum, right? When you are living one thing, thinking about how it can develop is, is really difficult. I think we all struggle to see silver lining at the moment. Uh, and uh, I think for, for us, uh, in the practical aspect for everybody working on, on Japan related topics outside Japan is that we cannot go there. 
you know, so then this has impacted our students massively in, in, in the UK in particular, but in, of course everywhere. But in, when you have a degree that has a compulsory years abroad, uh, is has been impacting since last year, uh, those cohort uh, in, in quite in a strong, in a strong way, uh, in, in practicality and not being able to go there. And of course, for all of us working on contemporary or they even to do interviews, who knows when we will be able to redo it, but even archives, uh, et cetera. And, but also the feeling of the place, right? The, the, the contact with, with Japan. And, and of course it's, and then again, there is a, a thing uh, um, very, you know, the, the problem is a lot for uh, early stage PhD, for example, that needed to start and set up their research. So that this, this at the moment that they are the one they are, um, you know, having a huge impact of the situation or this, the student that were about to go to fieldwork. Uh, because in a sense, uh, for some of us, it has the long relationship with Japan. Uh, there are strategies to keep the contact and, and do online interviews, but you, you need the network to do that, you know, and it's, it's different if you already had a, someone that you know for 20 years or, or you're starting doing this, this thing. So there is a, a difference there. There is a huge impact on us uh, ability to do research. And, and of course there are different situations. There are people with uh, caring responsibility that could be children or, or uh, other situation where this is going to impact on their ability and their publication, for example. But, and, and if they are doing a PhD, they impact or continue it. But also people living in, 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 uh, alone and, and suffering this loneliness, you know, the, this kind of the impact on mental health of, of the last year is going to be long lasting. Um, well, how is going to impact on the field? Uh, so th there will be this access issues that will, 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 will come up. At the same time, if you want to see the silver lining is that we have this humongous access to discussion that before we didn't, you know, we were access to um, conference, to webinars, to, to, to uh, debates that are um, free to access uh, most of them and, and open. Um, so th there is also, I think, a, a, an opening up of a lot of discussion that before that were going on, we didn't even know, or we didn't have access to this. And now you have this, there are these opportunity to be part. And, and this also for uh, uh, someone or some of the students, you know, we could invite to our East Asian Studies Seminar a speaker that normally we wouldn't be able to invite because of the cost and, and the time, but we, we could invite them uh, to, to zoom in and do the presentation. So our student this year had the opportunity to, to attend the seminar uh, with, with um, you know, guests from really all over the world. So this is one thing. I, um, I still think that, of course, even the online access to conference, et cetera, is, is not necessarily um, equal um, because it still require time. Uh, it still requires you know, the, 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 the luxury of time uh, and the luxury of, of, of a good internet connection that not everybody does have. So there is still issue we need to work on, on that as well. Um, the other things that it, looking a bit in, in the in the future, I, I think I was I was listening to Cristiniano um, 
opening address at the AAS the other the other night. Um, and and she she's talked about this idea of global Asians, right? So to move in, in into this kind of of, of transnational, transgeographical, transdisciplinary um, approach of movement to people uh, and, and, and ideas and, 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 and cultures um, um, from Asian and, and Asian diaspora as, as a way to move forward our, our field beyond the, um, the specificity of this, you know, but beyond this, this spatial specificity, but also the temporal specificity of the geographical location. And, and I think one, one thing that we can think about is not just the pandemic, but then, you know, pandemic in sense of, of, of uh, disaster and reaction to disaster, that is something that uh, an interesting discussion that can, can come up from Japan and, and from, from our approach to, to Japanese studies, but also related also of other things that happened this year, like that, that all the discussion about race and racism and, and um, et cetera. So I think that, and of course, and the, the, the climate change. So all these aspects are, are connected. And then that could be something that could push our, our field into, into a shift of paradigm or different direction, um, which you know, some, some colleagues are, are calling critical Japanese studies, but we can even probably be beyond and start talking about you know, uh, uh, the colonial Japanese studies or, or a kind of you know, that, that something that goes beyond that, that just the critical aspect. How we do it is an open question, uh, but I think that um, the situation we feel ourselves in um, is, is something that can produce some this kind of reaction reflection uh, for, for our field. And I know it sounds extremely vague because at, at the moment we actually don't really have much idea of how and what, what direction we are going to, to be. The practicality is working in a university in a department teaching Japanese studies is really the practicality. So how we are going to make our students to feel Japan <laughs> or to, to experience when they cannot travel there. Uh, and and that was is more is, is the practical side of, of, of the current situation. But for me, it's opened up the opportunity to discuss in class a lot of the a lot of issue of marginalities, because you know we all know that the pandemic is not the great equalizer. You know that you know we different um, group of people, uh, the impact is extremely different. So, and that was the way I entered into discussing the pandemic in Japan, discussing of, of uh, issue of, of marginalities or poverty is uh, bringing in that, that discussion. Um, and then, you know, and then you can also bring in the discussion of, of, of race, of, of, of racism, etc. So you, you can use in, in, in pedagogically, you can use uh, the, the pandemic in that way to, to open up the, the, those, those kind of discussion and uh, the big discussion about fear, you know, uh, and, and then you, you can use that as, as a critical term to discuss all these things um, uh, in, 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 in a class, for example. Uh, but I'm, I'm sorry, I, I've been going a bit uh, all over the place with, with this answer. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I mean, it's, it is very difficult to kind of predict um, how the long lasting impact of this pandemic is going to look like. I mean, the only immediate thing that we can observe is really this, what you've um, laid out this, 
yeah, rise of accessibility, of, of opening up conversations just because you we took away the yeah, the locality aspect of things. Suddenly meetings that could never be held on Zoom are being held uh, online rather than in, in public. I mean, um, so uh, yeah, that is definitely a chance, but it, as you said, if you're doing field work, if you are um, in the early stages of your of your research project, then it can be incredibly difficult to figure out a way to mm. make it work. You know, but I think the the great opportunity, if you want to say the word with this access, is also that you can access type of talk you would probably not attended before. Yeah. And then when we were going back to the discussion about disciplinary boundaries, um, now there is this great opportunity that you can sign up to a webinar or a talk that is way outside your comfort zone, but you can try it without having to travel or, or enter yeah. in a room and fill in this. Um, and I, I, I must confess, I've been doing that quite a lot. And I, I've been going to talk, there are, quite outside my area more than talk on, on my area, exactly because, you know, I, I, I think sometimes feeling uncomfortable uh, and, and not having the language can also be useful to, to reflect on what you're working on. Uh, but again, and then, but then I, I have a lot of talk written in my schedule and then reality kicks in and I cannot attend <laughs> any of them. Uh, so that is also the, the dreamlike part and, and the, the really reality of real life and, and jobs and, and everything else. So, yeah. No, but it's good to, there's at least one, one or two positives from this <laughs> very crazy year that we've had. Um, well, we've kept you much longer than we tentatively said that we would. So thank you so oh, much. Sorry, I think I just <laughs> too, too long in answering my questions. So thank you for your patience. <laughs> no, no, it's been incredibly fascinating. So we always like to, to end just by asking the question, if you could go back to that first day, if you go back in, and see yourself on that first day of your undergraduate degree, just starting out on this journey, what would you say to yourself, be it a bit of general advice, a warning, or, or what have you? Uh, Try to put yeah. you on the spot like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing, probably, because I'm very good, uh, very bad at listening to advice. <laughs> I wouldn't probably listen to it and do the extreme opposite. Um, so I, I know that there are things I would have done differently, but if I did, I wouldn't be in where I am at the moment. So I, I don't think I will change that. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's, I, as I, I want to repeat, I've been extremely fortunate in, in, in the type of people I encounter during, during my, um, my path and, and my degrees and, and, and my career. And those I think are the, most important thing at the end of the day i think it's it's find your people is probably the most important advice uh, and and not your institution your people are, are much more important than than the structure um but yeah my the 18 years old me won't listen to anything <laughs> <laughs> well i think find your people is great advice in, in academia and in life so yeah absolutely good choice is there anything um, that you're currently um, working on that we should keep an eye on or um, any any events that you would like to just um, yeah point our listeners to? 
So at the moment, I'm, I'm uh, finalizing a special issue uh, for the journal Newman on the history of religion. That is a special issue on um, aesthetic and emotion on religious belonging, uh, on looking mm. at Buddhism. And, and this came up from a collaboration with, with colleagues uh, in, in working on different um, Asian countries. And this, we are about to submit the, the final uh, version. So, and then it goes go to uh, copy editor. So it should come out by the end of the year. And, and then it's again, uh, a lot of my work is collaborative. So I, I'm, I'm really uh, happy that this also is coming out. And again, I don't think it would have been possible, uh, well, it was possible before we, of course, we met in person first, but also during the pandemic, the fact of working together helped a lot because it, it became also a way of supporting each other. Um, and then I'm co-organizing an event in July with uh, Sonia Favi, who is a Marie Curie fellow at the John Ryan's Library at, at Manchester, which is a, a conference on, on travel and, and the modern period and not just in Japan, but it is based on her research on the uh, on the map collect Japanese map collection at the John Ryan's Library. So with uh, um, conference is going to be open. So we are you know now um, selecting the abstract, but we also um, are thinking of opening up to people that want just want to come and listen into it and it's, it's free. Um, so that that is the other things I'm I'm working on at, at the moment. And then I'm I'm continuing my project on on minority religions in in Japan. That that's the the third the third things. Yeah, so a lot ahead. <laughs> and if we can't uh, travel physically at the moment, then maybe um, having the the virtual travel on with maps uh, as you laid out in the conference sounds very appealing. Exactly, that exactly was what, what we did, so that you can at least travel through these beautiful maps that were done in, in Tokugawa, where people actually had a lot of travel restrictions, so <laughs> <laughs> it resonates with, with, Relatable. with our situation. <laughs> well, again, we just really like to thank you for um, you taking time and, and talk to us today. Um, it was uh, very fascinating to hear about your, um, yeah, your journey through uh, Japanese studies uh, and religious studies. It's very much an interdisciplinary um, uh, journey that you had, and um, hopefully, uh, yeah, uh, we'll see each other soon at one or the other conference. Yeah, let's um, hope so. <laughs> <laughs> virtually or uh, in person, but um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Sorry why it was so long and I hope it was okay. <laughs> uh, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope that you enjoy the interview with Dr. Perfelli as much as we enjoyed recording it. We hope it might provide you with some inspiration and food for thought, whatever stage you might be at on your own academic journey. You would like to thank the British Association of Japanese Studies for their ongoing support and for making this podcast possible.